0: Well, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The Masters Tournament at Augusta National Golf Club is known for its tight security. The tens of thousands of patrons who attend the event are all channeled through a single gate. This makes for a crowded entrance and for a few moments, a captive audience. One of the first times I attended the Masters, there were several guys outside the gate wearing these sandwich boards and carrying bull horns, and they were shouting at the crowd, repent or go to hell, turn or burn, repent, the end is near, that kind of message. Now, I'm not questioning the theological accuracy of their statements, but their presentation left something to be desired. They came across as crazy and vengeful. Hey, you can warn people about hell without giving them the sense that you just assume they go there. (laughs) Repent doesn't mean to insult. Sadly, this is the only impression that some folks have of the word repentance. Satan is skillful. In the collective mind of the culture, he's turned the word repent into an ugly, hate field angry, condemning, judgmental word, instead of the pleasing and pleasant and enduring word, endearing word that it actually is. It sounds strange to say it, but repentance is a beautiful thing. After his ordeal on the Mediterranean Sea, Jonah would forever see repentance as something beautiful. It was a welcome frame of mind, a peaceful posture. Repentance was Jonah's rescue from a horrible, hellacious experience. The moment he repented, it ended the entrapment from which he desperately wanted to escape, but didn't think he could ever do so. Repentance was Jonah's salvation. This biblical word, repent, is an interesting term. The Hebrew word, shub, means simply to turn. The Greek term, metanio, means to have another mind or to change one's mind or to think differently. After the reading of both Testaments, I like to define repentance as the willingness to change. Understand, I can't always affect the changes I know I need to make. When a desperate heart first comes to Jesus, it's overpowered and it's trapped. It's a slave to sin. You can't even change even though you might want to. If we had the might or the know-how or the wherewithal to alter our spiritual lives, we wouldn't need Jesus in the first place. This is why in the Bible, repent and believe go together. Only Jesus can change me in the way that I need to be changed. This is why my conversion from darkness to light, a new life in Christ, is the result of faith. But faith's prerequisite is repentance. The willingness to change. So what if I believe that Jesus can revolutionize my life if I'm not willing to undergo the changes that involves? You see, the opposite of repentance is stuck. Are you stuck this morning? The unrepentant person is still enjoying what he knows to be bad for him. She's unwilling to let it go and give it up. Reminds me of the guy who read for weeks that cigarette smoking was bad for his health. It causes a host of problems, not the least of which is lung cancer. Well, after weeks of reading the literature, this fellow decided he had to do something. He needed to take some action. So he stopped reading the literature. (laughs) Rather than stop smoking, the man stopped reading the warnings. He preferred ignorance to deliverance. It wasn't that the man couldn't change, he just never even tried. He never gave it a chance, he never got that far. He was simply unwilling to change. In other words, he was unrepentant. This was Jonah aboard the boat that was headed to Tarshish. Jonah too was unrepentant. God had required of Jonah some changes in his thinking that he was unwilling to make. Jonah had been called by God to go to Nineveh and preach to Assyrians, but Jonah hated these Ninevites. He refused to obey. He went his own way. Jonah packed up his duffel bag, hoofed it down to the port of Joppa, and boarded a slow boat to China, or in Jonah's case, to Tarshish. Jonah's plan was to put 2,500 miles between his own will and the will of God. But God said, Not so fast. No one outruns God you see at times the will of God can seem very very difficult obedience can be hard at first God's demands stretch us they tax us following God can require some endurance and some resistance and even some suffering but never forget there, was, there is only one undertaking more difficult than following God and that's turning from his will and disobeying. For God sees to it that no child of his succeeds in their sin. He makes sure that we're miserable without him. When the sudden storm shook their boat, the sailors sensed that God wanted what was on board. At first they tossed over the cargo, but the storm continued to rage. It had to be a sailor or a passenger that, Jonah was, that God was after. But When the lot fell on Jonah... And the fugitive was found when Jonah was exposed. The sailors decided not to throw him off. They wanted him to survive. And so they continued to oar. They continued to struggle. But this was a serious, this was a life-threatening storm. It wasn't letting up until it had what it was after. Verse 15 ends this dilemma for the sailors. It says, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. But as Jonah sunk under the murky ocean, the struggle was just beginning for the unrepentant prophet. For chapter one ends, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now let me help you with the flow of this morning's text by giving you seven words. Now This might sound a little corny, which is something very unusual for me. I mean, I'm like never corny. (laughs) But all seven words in my list begin with the letter M. This is where I'm going. Think of the old Campbell's soup jingle. You remember that? Mm-mm, good. Mm-mm, good. That's what Campbell's soups are. Mm-mm, good. When the hungry fish swallowed Jonah in the soupy water, he sung, mm-mm, good. In fact, God, even Jonah afterwards, hummed, Mm-hmm, good, for rather than negative, repentance is good and pleasing, and even beautiful. So here's our seven M words: mammal, model, maybe, misery, memory, mercy, movement. All these M's combine to teach us that repentance is mm, mm, good. Notice first the mammal. I say a mammal, a whale, but that's just an assumption, for the Bible doesn't actually say whale. Verse 17 calls it a great fish. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And of course, this is where the skeptics have a field day, scoffing at the Bible. How could anyone believe that a man could be swallowed by a whale survive in his belly for 3 days get spit up on dry land and then live to tell about it this well of a tale is fine to entertain kids in sunday school but adults should know better this is what they say it reminds me of the cartoon john is standing there on the doorstep of his house his angry wife opens the front door and shouts for crying out loud, Jonah, three days late, covered with slime and smelling like fish. And what story have I got to swallow this time? This is where the story gets a little fishy and becomes hard to swallow. Did you hear about the atheist who asked his Christian friend? He said, come on now, how could Jonah really survive for 72 hours in the belly of a whale? The Christian answered, he said, well, I don't really know, but when I get to heaven, I'll be sure to ask you. The atheist shot back, but what if Jonah isn't in heaven? The Christian replied, well, then you ask him. <laughs> hey, do I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish? Absolutely. Here are a few thoughts for you. Verse 17 tells us, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Hebrew word translated prepared implies a special, unique preparation. God didn't just pick the biggest of the school of fish and say, you're it. No, the Hebrew word means to carefully design and weigh. In fact, the Jewish rabbis taught that God created this particular fish, the fish that swallowed Jonah on the fifth day of his original creation for the unique privilege of chauffeuring Jonah. It swam the seven seas for thousands of years, waiting on this appointed time. Since whales are the largest animals currently living in the sea, we assume that one swallowed Jonah, but not necessarily. It could have been a now extinct creature. The rabbi suggested it was one of a kind. Perhaps it was an ancient dinosaur created with a cavity off its digestive tract, planned by God to house the prophet. Here's another thought for you. A baby is conceived in a mother's womb. God provides for that baby to float and eat and grow and survive for 280 days in a sack of fluid. (laughs) Now don't think I'm dumb enough to compare a pregnant woman to a whale. I'm stupid, friend, but not that stupid. And I value my life, okay? But I'm just saying, if God can keep a baby alive in a woman's belly for 40 weeks, why can't He engineer a way to sustain Jonah in a whale's belly for just three days? Modern navies have nuclear subs that generate their own air and water and stay submerged indefinitely. An astute class submarine can sail around the globe 40 times, stay underwater for 25 years, and never surface. Ironically, humans can engineer a submarine to accommodate 98 sailors for months at a time, yet we don't think God can create a fish that can carry one man for three days. Sounds like our problem is faith. We got more faith in man than we have in God. Here's another thought. Even if it was a whale, this story isn't an impossibility. The average sperm whale has a mouth 20 foot long By 15 feet high, by 9 feet wide. That's larger than a lot of bedrooms in your house. Whalers have found whole man-sized squid and sharks inside these whales. Though it would be stifling in a whale's stomach, somewhere between 104 and 108 degrees, there would still be plenty of air to breathe. Whales ingest large quantities of oxygen. The gastric juices in a whale's stomach would affect the pigment of a man's skin, but the chemicals wouldn't digest living flesh. If they did, they would eat out the whale's own stomach. Thus, a man could survive in its belly. In fact, over the years, there have been a number of reports among whalers of fellow fishermen who fell into the sea only to be found later alive inside a whale. One story is of a whaler named James Bartley. There's a picture of him. It looks like he's been a whale, in a whale, doesn't it? <laughs> Poor James Bartley. In 1891, he was lost at sea off the coast of the Falkland Islands. The accident occurred as sailors were harpooning a whale. A few hours later, as they were harvesting the whale's blubber, they noticed activity in its stomach. When they cut open the animal's belly, they found James Bartley alive and Well. His skin was discolored, but otherwise he was unharmed. Aspects of the story have been debated, but the scenario is a possibility. Here's my point. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 9, the prophet referred to God as the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. If God made the sea and its billions of inhabitants, big and small, then he can prepare a fish capable of capturing and carrying Jonah for 72 hours. Again, verse 17 reads, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here's another M word, model. If you still doubt that the book of Jonah is a true story, then fast forward about 900 years. The person we call God, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, referred to Jonah and his stay in the great fish's belly as a historical account. Matthew 12, verse 39, tells us of the day when some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus not only testifies to the historicity of the person of Jonah and the book that's given his name, he said the story was a model or a type or a sign to future generations. You know, you wonder why the fish kept Jonah for exactly three days and three nights. That was no accident. That was no random length of time. Jesus said the duration of Jonah's time out was precisely planned by God down to the very hour. It was a sign. For what happened to Jonah in the sea modeled the three greatest events in the history of the world. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And in light of the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, let me give you another M word, maybe. Here's a maybe. We can't be definite here, but the text suggests it. It's possible that Jonah died, that he literally drowned in the sea, and his dead body was swallowed and preserved inside the fish. Then after Jonah was resurrected, he was spit up on the seashore. It's a maybe, but it would make Jonah even more a type or a model of Jesus than we even thought. Notice a couple of statements that Jonah makes in chapter two. In verse two, Jonah writes, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. Now Sheol was the Old Testament term for Hades or hell. It was the abode of the dead in the Old Testament. You remember in Luke chapter 16, Jesus describes Sheol as a duplex. Two contrasting places were divided by a great gulf. There was a pleasant side and there was a torturous side. Believers went to the pleasant place called paradise. Unbelievers went to the parched place of fiery torment. Now, maybe Jonah is speaking here metaphorically. The belly of the fish felt like hell. I mean, it was hot as hell. It was dark. The juices burned his flesh. It was seventy-two hours of torture. That could be the case, or it could be that when he cried from the belly of Sheol, he was speaking literally—that physically he was dead. He had gone to Sheol, but his spirit spent those seventy-two. His spirit spent those seventy-two hours in another world. Notice also Jonah's words in verse five. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. Notice whatever he went through impacted him spiritually, on the level of his soul. It could be that the spirit of Jonah journeyed into the afterlife and back, not unlike the voyage that Jesus would take nearly 900 years later. Of course, whether Jonah actually died or just endured inside the fish, he was conscious enough for long enough to realize the misery that surrounded him in misery is our fourth M word. Notice in verse two, Jonah refers to his incredible ordeal as my affliction. He recalls in verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Have you ever been tossed into a raging river? Maybe you're floating down the river and you get in some rapids and get tossed into the water. Or maybe you battled an ocean riptide, wanted to suck you out to sea. Or maybe you just drifted too far into the ocean and suddenly you were in over your head. Have you ever been on the verge of drowning? A water crisis is a terribly hopeless, helpless feeling. And sometimes God allows us to reach a hopeless point, to reach a helpless place he realizes that a little bit of desperation can help produce a repentant heart. It reminds me of the young man who approached the elder of his village and said he wanted to know God. The old man took him to the river and he held his head under the water. Well, the young man was stronger than the older man, so finally he forcibly lifted up his head. Gasping for air, he wanted to know what his mentor was doing. The elder told him, When you're as desperate for God as you were for air, then you'll find him. Often God uses desperation to bring us to a place of repentance. And remember, this is why repentance is not the ability to change, but the willingness to change. Jonah is so in over his head, he can do nothing. Perhaps that's where you are today. You're desperate. You're drowning. You're sinking in your sea of despair. The old Puritan preacher Thomas Watson once said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. In addition, he wrote, never do the flowers of grace grow more than after a shower of repentant tears. It's the misery of our sin that plows up our hard hearts. Repentance is finally coming to embrace the attitude, if God works, then I'm willing. Is that your attitude today? Do you want to cooperate with what God's Spirit wants to do in you? That's a repentant heart. And most times, it's the misery of our situation that gets us to that point, that produces that desire to repent. Well, there's more misery for Jonah in verse 5. He says, The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Imagine peeling away layer after layer of smelly slime. You're sinking deeper and deeper into the well. You're fighting the grip of the crawling, entrapping seaweed. Verse 6, I went down to the moorings, or literally the foundations of the mountains, The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah sunk to the bottom of the canyons on the ocean floor. Here's another suggestion that Jonah may have drowned in the sea. Imagine what happens to Jonah. He's grabbed by the sailors and he's tossed overboard. He feels himself sailing through the salty air until his body slaps against the surface of the water. He tries to gulp... Some air just before he starts sinking like a rock. It's cold. It's dark. He begins to submerge under the murky sea. Meanwhile, a great fish has been swimming for hours on a trajectory that's going to intersect with Jonah's free fall. It's the providence of God. A hunger pain hits this massive animal just a few feet from Jonah's suspended body. The whale opens its mouth. And he swallows up some fish bait named Jonah. Jonah floats down, down, down his throat. He floats down past the animal's teeth, thankfully, without getting chewed. He hits the back of its gullet. He slides down the digestive tract into its stomach. What a wild ride. The whale thinks, "Mm mm-mm, good. (laughs) Jonah thinks, "Mm mm-mm, bad. He is the miserable prophet. And imagine this trip from pickup point to three days later and his ultimate destination. I mean, this had to have been the worst roller coaster, three day, imagine a three day roller coaster ride. This had to have been terrible. This is like getting on board with a full stomach and losing your lunch along the way. Imagine being in the belly of this fish as it twists and turns, then rolls and dives through the ocean at high speeds. I can get motion sickness in my own car on the way to the grocery store. I can't imagine Jonah's misery. And this is the point. God is not afraid to make us miserable when need be. When our obedience and his will are at stake, our comfort becomes God's last concern. Remember, God loves us too much to allow us to succeed in our sin. I'll never forget the night I just put my kids to bed. I'd just gotten comfortable in the old lazy boy. When my three-year-old son, Nick, comes waltzing through the room, I said, son, what in the world are you doing out of bed? He turned to me with a defiant look on his face, and he said, Dad, mind your own business. <laughs> Ooh. I proceeded to show that boy exactly what my business is. I'm sure he's been doing the same with his boys now. In fact, it's every father's business to discipline their kids. And God is a good, good father. When he sees one of his kids straying outside the boundaries of his will, he isn't afraid to take care of business. Trust me, the same Lord Jesus who picked up a wooden cross to save us will also take up a wooden spoon to spank us. Just ask the prophet Jonah. Which brings us to the next M word, memory. Read with me two verses. Verse four. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Then, verse seven. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to him into your holy temple. In the belly of a fish, Jonah recalls the courts of the Lord. See, Jonah remembered the sheer joy and tranquility, the unexplainable peace, the warmth of just being in the center of God's will. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? It was the same feeling he had experienced whenever he had worshiped God in the temple. Now he remembers it again. It's been said, you don't truly love something until you realize it can be lost. See, Jonah had lost God's peace. He had forgotten how much he missed God's blessing, God's bliss. And it took the stark contrast between the joys of God's temple and the miseries of a fish's belly to jar the prophet's memory. Perhaps you've forgotten what it's like to to love God and to be loved by God. Your pride, your rebellion, your stubbornness, Your disobedience has driven a wedge between you and what was once your greatest joy. Don't forget, God misses you even more than you miss him. And that's why God loved Jonah so much. That's why he chased him halfway around the world, hurled a storm at him, had him thrown overboard, prepares a great fish, ensures his misery, and then stirs up a memory just to get this man to repent. Jonah didn't, but he could have written Psalm 139. Listen to its Jonah-like lyrics. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, the Hebrew word is literally sheol. Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand. Shall hold me. The story of Jonah proves that nothing can separate us from God's love, not even our own stubbornness. He tirelessly pursues us and desires that we repent, for God knows that repentance is a beautiful thing. And here's the sixth word in this story it's a truly wonderful word mercy. Here it gets Mm-mm, good. As Ephesians tells us, God is rich in mercy. In verse 8, Jonah recalls the goodness of God. He says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Only the God of Israel was a God of mercy. The ancients invented gods to keep people in line. Their gods were fickle and angry and vindictive, they had to be appeased or they would rain down judgment. That's why Jonah says to worship idols is to forsake mercy. Jonah now realizes that all his troubles were of his own making. While the prophet walked in the will of God, he was never thrown over the side of a ship or wrapped in seaweed or sunk to the bottom of the deep. Following God's will had proven far safer and more advantageous than walking in the will of Jonah. It was when he forsook God that he forsook mercy. And as Jonah remembers God's goodness and his mercy, as he dwells on it, it stirs up in him a desire to repent. This is what Paul predicted would happen in Romans 2 verse 4 when he asked, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It's when we remember God's goodness, that's what stirs us to repent. As Jonah reflected on God's faithfulness, it created in him a desire to be faithful. In verse 9, he repents. He turns back to God. He's willing for God's will once again. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah submits. He finally gives in to God's will. Realize Before Jonah ever experienced a change in circumstances, he first adopted a change of attitude. Understand that. That's probably true for you as well. Jonah repented. Jonah turned from his rebellion and surrendered to God's will. Our fugitive stops running from God and starts running toward God. Devotion and sacrifice become Jonah's salvation, not Tarshish. Notice in verse 9, Jonah chooses to be thankful for God's will ahead of time. He embraces it with praise, with the voice of thanksgiving. He trusts that God's will is always mm -mm good. Are you wise enough to draw the same conclusion? And then notice the final M word, movement. It's amazing here. That all the while, Jonah's trapped and imprisoned in the belly of the great fish. The fish is on the move. After the fish gulped down Jonah, he started swimming toward Nineveh. Even at Jonah's lowest point, God was at work positioning him for revival. God was placing Jonah back into the center of his will, even though he didn't know it. See, here's the point. If you're a child of God, even when you think you're going nowhere, God is still at work. God is on the move. Today's sorrows are just the seeds for tomorrow's blessing. Well, finally, we're told in verse 10, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Notice the whale was far more obedient to God than the prophet. The moment God speaks to the fish, it obeys. Marine biologists have long observed that whales are sophisticated communicators. They give off sounds that are recognized by other whales in their pod. A lot of research has gone into the pattern, understanding the patterns of these sounds. Well, it shouldn't be surprising that God the Creator is fluent in whale talk. For as soon as God gave the order, the fish obeyed and vomited Jonah onto the shore. Imagine you being a Mediterranean fisherman. You're on the shore. You're cleaning up your nets. Maybe you're repairing your boat. When all of a sudden a whale swims up into the shallow water, rises up from the surf, and up chucks a man onto the beach. The guy's skin is bleached white, his clothes have dissolved into threads, his hair is wild and brittle, he's rubbing his eyes, getting used to the daylight, and the first words out of his mouth: Nineveh are bust. You'd look at that wild man and you'd think, What an ugly sight! You would see nothing pretty about Jonah, his appearance or his situation. But you wouldn't be looking through God's eyes or from Jonah's perspective. For repentance is a beautiful thing. The mammal, the model, the maybe, the misery, the memory, the mercy, the movement, all combined To bring Jonah to repentance. What will it take for you?